We are in Romans chapter 11 as we've been going through. Romans and uh, let me turn over there for a minute. Uh, we'll get back to this sheet in just a moment as we get into the text. But Romans 11. All right, let me go ahead and pray and then we'll get into the word of God tonight. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you that you've brought us here tonight. We thank you that through the rain, everybody, everyone has made it here. And uh, Lord, we pray for those who are not here with us tonight, that you just uh, minister to them wherever they're, they're at. And Lord, if they're sick, we ask for your healing hand upon them. And now, Lord, we ask that you might open your word to us, give us understanding that we might return it to you in praise, and Lord, that we might offer ourselves as living sacrifices to you. We pray, dear God, that you teach us now, and we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, we've been in Romans chapter 11, and in Romans uh, 9, Paul starts out a new question. Remember, we left Romans 8, and Romans 8 was incredible. Romans 8 was all about what God has done for us, that we have total victory in Christ, that we need not fear losing our salvation, that we need not fear someone cutting in on us or, or destroying what God is working, that this is all by Christ, through him, for him, and to him. It's all that Christ has done and that he cannot fail. And so Paul kind of anticipated a question uh, coming from, a, you know, he anticipated like a, a fictitious, fictitious question coming. And that question was, well, wait a minute, hold on, Paul. I like your idea. I like your thinking. Love what you said in Romans 8. But what about the Jews? What about Israel? Because to them came the covenants, to them the prophets, to them all these promises of God. And now here they are rejecting the, the Messiah and uh, choosing the law. And so Romans 9, Paul started on, on a discourse about that question, what about Israel? Can Israel still be saved? And that's where we've been going through, looking through Romans 9, 10, and finally we're here in 11 and about to finish 11. Last week we talked about this olive tree, uh, this illustration of an olive tree, where the natural, the roots of the olive tree had been planted and some of the natural branches were cut off and unnatural wild olive branches were grafted in, that representing the Gentiles, most of us in this room. Uh, meanwhile, the natural branches were cut off. And then with that illustration, Paul said that we have to understand that the root is Israel. The root is all in, in the Old Testament. It's in the patriarchs. All this came through Jesus Christ. So we shouldn't be boastful as Gentiles, but we should recognize this wonderful gift of God that he's given to us through Israel. And with that, that he'll graft back in the natural branches. So that's where we're picking up this morning. But I think as we continue on in this, I want to just open up helping you understand some of the position of modern day Israel and the modern-day Jew to Christianity. You know, when you ask people in this fellowship, probably the majority of this fellowship would look at the Jew as someone that they have love for, someone of Israel, that, that they want to be saved, and they can't wait for them to be saved, and they'd love to bless a Jew because Abraham was told, those who bless you, I'll bless 
and, and those who curse you all curse. And so we look at the Jewish people as our brethren who don't know Jesus Christ yet. But that's not the way it's been for history. And the, the modern Jew today, if you were to ask them about Christianity, they would think that in order to become a Christian, they have to betray all of their heritage. Now, you and I look at it from the, the standpoint of a biblical uh, history, and we go, no, we've been grafted in. We've been given this wonderful heritage through the Jews, and here we are as Christians, okay? There's not, we don't see it as something different. We see it as completion. But that's not how a Jew is told, and that's not how a Jew sees it. And so you and I, when we see Isaiah 53 or Psalm 22, and we read these passages in the Old Testament, we, we feel like, how could you not recognize that this is speaking of Jesus Christ? It's kind of like not recognizing that Clark Kent is Superman because he's got glasses on, right? And so, so we, we see this as how can they not see it, but, but the Jew, remember, has been partially blinded to these things, and we'll talk about that in a moment. But let me give you a little bit of history between Christianity and the church because it's not all good and we don't have time to go into all of it. But you have to understand, and I'm just going to go, I'm not even going to go back all the way. I'm just going to go back to the Council of Nicaea, that council that Constantine held in Rome in 3, I think it was 325. Uh, I might be wrong on that date. But uh, that council, we, we find out that there were no Jewish bishops included at that council. And a decision was made to replace at that council Passover with Easter and to replace the Saturday Sabbath with a Sunday Sabbath. Now, you and I uh, all read Colossians. We see no man should honor a day one day above the other, you know, and we, we see that the tradition of worshiping Christ on Sunday makes sense because Christ rose from the dead. But there were actual edicts made at that council of Nicaea. And in talking about the council, the emperor Constantine is quoted as saying, let us then have nothing in common with the detestable Jewish crowd, for we have received from our Savior a different way. After this decision was made, early church fathers increased in their criticism and distaste for the Jewish people. And it didn't stop there. The Jewish people were forbidden for, from accepting converts to Judaism uh, in Rome or circumcising their slaves. As time progressed, performing a circumcision became actually illegal the violation of which would result in the death penalty. Eventually, Jewish people were barred from holding a public office or serving as an officer in the military. Later, restrictions were put on where Jewish people could live, with whom they could do business, and where they could travel. Jewish people faced many expulsions from different countries over the span of centuries. Now, I know you and I both say, well, well, that doesn't really represent us, the church, but you have to understand that this is in the name of Christianity that these things are being done. More than that, the Crusades. Uh, the Crusades, there was a lot of anti-Semitism that came with the Crusaders down into the Holy Land to retake the Holy Land from the, the Muslims and the Jews. The Spanish Inquisition, and again, I know that none of us would be in line with any of these, the Catholic Church, in regards to the Spanish Inquisition, but it was done in the name of Christianity and the Christian Church. The, uh, the Jews were seen as heretics, and anyone who kept any Jewish Passover, even if they claimed to be a Christian, was seen as heretics. 
the Reformation brought with it also anti-Semitism. There were pogroms, which are uh, state-sponsored anti-Semitic rallies and, and, and uh, marches. And of course, the Holocaust. We all know about the Nazi German Holocaust and how the Jews were targeted in that. Now, you might say, well, Hitler was an evil man. Yes, he was, but Hitler claimed to be Christian. And more than that, most of the Christian churches in Germany didn't say word about what was happening. They keep their, kept their mouth shut. So, so with this, there is an animosity between Israel, or the Jew, and the Christian. Jewish people uh, throughout the, the centuries have had to deal with anti-Semitism and hatred. And uh, rather than the church... Make, uh, making Israel jealous, they attacked the Jew. Okay, remember Paul said last week that, that we should be making Israel jealous for the relationship that we have with Christ, that we have with God. But instead, we've seen a history of anti-Semitism. Now, again, this doesn't mean that the whole church and all the church has done these things. And Satan is really good about convincing people that because one person claims something, then that means all people are doing it, and so they should reject it. And I absolutely believe that, that Satan has a, had a hand in all these things, especially Hitler. You know, he definitely had a spirit of Antichrist. But nonetheless, these things have happened over the years, and the Jews today believe that if they were to become a Christian, they would be embracing the persecution of their people. They would be denying their heritage, which is not true at all. In fact, the Bible teaches that for a Jew to receive Christ, Mashiach, would be the fulfillment of all of his faith. In fact, by the way, most Jews in Israel today don't even understand what the word Christ means. See, Christ is just the Greek term for Messiah. That's all it is. It's just a different translation of the same word. And so truly to receive Jesus Christ would be the fulfillment of all that they learned. So now we get to Romans verse 20, uh, chapter 11, verse 25. We're now getting into our scripture reading. And this will actually give us a lot of hope. So 11, verse 25, Paul says, writes, For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion that blindness and part has happened to Israel, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved as it is written. The deliverer will come out of Zion and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. And so Paul here is he's concluding chapter 11. And I don't have time to go back and recap everything we read. But as he's concluding, getting toward the end here of chapter 11, he says... I don't want you to be ignorant of a mystery. Now, a mystery is not an enigma like we use the term today. A mystery is something that, that uh, a, a truth which is difficult to understand and that God has revealed to us and should be publicly proclaimed. That's what a mystery is. So anytime in the New Testament when we read this term mystery, because it's associated with the rapture, it's associated with, with uh, the, the Jew and the Gentile, 
It's associated with the salvation to the Gentiles. It's something that God has revealed. It was difficult to understand, and it was previously unrevealed. Now he's made it known, and it should be publicly proclaimed. And so Paul says, okay, I don't want you to be ignorant of this mystery. Of what mystery? Well, here's what the mystery was. That blindness has in part happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So God has blinded Israel for your benefit. Now again, Paul says, lest you should be wise in your own opinion. And basically, don't get too big for your britches, Gentiles. Okay, don't think of yourself super great because you're not. Because God has done this in his mercy for you. And we'll, we'll get more into that in just a moment. But God has revealed this mystery uh, that Israel's blindness or hardening is partial or temporary. And we know earlier on, Paul spoke about that there are, I mean, this isn't a blanket for all Jews. We know that there are Jews, Paul himself being one of them, who, who receive Jesus as Messiah, as his Christ. But many, most are not. Most are, have turned away from Christ. And so Paul says that this is a partial blindness. It's a partial hardening. So don't come become conceited. Now he uses this term, fullness of the Gentiles. Now fullness means a full measure or abundance. And do not confuse this with time of the Gentiles. In the scriptures it speaks of time of the Gentiles. Jesus refers to it in the Olivet Discourse. And time of the Gentiles is really a political term. And is speaking, it start, the time of the Gentiles started when Babylon conquered Jerusalem and carried off into captivity the Jews. That was the time of the Gentiles. It was the time of the occupation of Israel. And we know that, that until the, the end of the time of the Gentiles, that will happen at Christ's second coming. At his return will be the end of the time of the Gentiles. But the fullness of the Gentiles is something quite different. See, Paul is speaking here about salvation for the Gentiles. Now, what does fullness mean? I don't know. I don't know how many is full. Is it a number? Is it a certain amount of tribes and tongues and languages? You know, many, many people think that because every tribe and tongue and language will be represented at the marriage supper of the land, that the fullness of the Gentiles is reaching those who have not been reached yet. And by the way, it's moving exponentially faster and faster the reaching of the unsaved. I printed up this sheet for you. Hopefully most of you got it at the door. But, but this sheet is the overlooked peoples of the earth, and it was a quick little pie chart that you can see. But, but this kind of explains how we're doing at reaching the world. And you can get this from the Joshua Project. You can go online to the Joshua Project. They're keep trying to do their best to keep track of unreached people groups. And there's a concerted worldwide effort of the church to, to meet together and to see who do we need to reach, who has advanced, who's gotten languages translated. In fact, we work with the God Story Project, and I have just, I always love it when I hang out with the God Story Project, uh, the director, Andrea, and we're sitting around talking, and I'll be talking about languages that we're dealing with, and then I'm speaking to another missionary over here. I was meeting with uh, uh, Rob Douglas from Ends of the Earth, and I said, no, I think we actually have God Story for those languages you're looking for, and uh, because they have no Bible and resources, it's just amazing to see what God's doing. Well, in this chart, 
it kind of explains 60% live in reached people groups and explains what a reached people group is. And 10% of those are active followers of Jesus. Uh, oftentimes we would uh, place that as, you know, real born-again believer evangelical. 25% are considered other Christian. 25% non-Christians living among Christians. Then 40% of the world's population lives in what's considered an unreached people group. And so an unreached people group would be less than 2% active believers. And of course, among that, we have tribes today that are less than 0.1% active believers. That would be considered a frontier people group. By the way, our church is involved in reaching some of these frontier people groups. Unfortunately, those people groups are the hardest to reach because they're also the most dangerous. So it, it, it takes a lot to reach those people groups. But our church is involved in that in our missions programs. And, and as, as it goes, as the gospel goes out, those frontier people groups, they, they, most of those people don't have any idea of where to hear the gospel even, let alone a, a Bible in their language. Uh, you and I today could find somebody easily or a church if we wanted to know something about the gospel. Like if, if we were searching and we said, I just want to know about God, we could go to a church. <laughs> we could find a church easily. But in these areas, there's no church to find and no person to speak to regarding. This is often the places where you find that uh, uh, miraculous gifts happening, appearances of Christ to people or angels, things of that sort. Um, so understand that the, the, when you look at that pie chart, in 1978, which is just, just over 40 years ago, um, <clears throat> in 1978, that pie chart was actually three quarters considered unreached. Um, <laughs> so three quarters of that pie chart would have been considered unreached and frontiers people groups. It's no longer that way, is it? In fact, we see that it's being sliced off and more and more people are being reached with the gospel. That's exciting news. Now, I don't know if this has to do with, if this is what we'd consider the fullness of the Gentiles. Only God knows what that, that is uh, and the numbers. But I figured I would give you that opportunity to learn about what God is doing in the world through his church. It's pretty, pretty exciting, pretty amazing. All right. Um, so until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, that's when we see that uh, that uh, that uh, we read verse 26, and so all Israel will be saved as as it is written, the deliverer will come out of Zion, and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob, for this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. And so all Israel will be saved. So this is speaking of national Israel, okay? And we, we know that, that today there's this partial blindness, but we know that there is coming a point in time when all the elect Jewish people alive at the end of the Great Tribulation, uh, will, they'll have access to the gospel. And we know that during the Great Tribulation, God has set aside witnesses. There, there is going to be a revival among the Jewish people to receive Jesus Christ as their Messiah. You see, God has made his covenant with Israel. He's made many covenants with Israel. And there are those who will try to teach that the church replaces Israel. And so when it says all Israel, it's speaking of 
spiritual Israel, which would include the, uh, the, the church would be included in that. And by the way, this is not what Paul is speaking about because from chapter 9, he's never used the Gentile church in the context of Israel. He's only been speaking about the Jews and, and national Israel. And so here we're given this hope that, hey, they're going to be saved. That, that, that they're going to start to uh, receive the gospel. And we're starting to see a softening happen among the Jews and a, among Israel. A softening of the heart and a, a responsiveness and questions being asked, which is very, very exciting. I, I think we're uh, definitely going to start to see a harvest in our lifetimes of, of Jews. But nonetheless, we see here that God has made covenants. And in order it, for us to write off Israel, we have to write off all the covenants. Uh, what are those covenants? Well, first of all, he made a covenant with Abraham. But then he made the land covenant, if you remember. And he made it with Abraham. And he made it also with, he reaffirmed it with David. And that's that there were certain land borders that were going to belong to Israel. We're waiting for that to happen. And, th- and that covenant was not a conditional covenant. It was, it was a covenant that God said, I will give this to you. And then with that, he made the Davidic covenant that stated that God would place David's heir, or David's heir on the throne. And we know that that's Jesus Christ, and yet there's no, no, no throne today or has been since Christ's first advent where he's actually sat on the throne. That's coming in his second advent. And then there was a new covenant promise to Jeremiah in Jeremiah 31, and we're going to read a little bit of prophecy here. Jeremiah 31, and we'll go to verse 31. If you have your Bibles, you can open it up. But Jeremiah 31, 31, we read, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Now, hold on. Let me pause there for a moment. Is God speaking to the Gentiles here? There's no reason to think he's speaking to the Gentiles. Now, we know that God opens up salvation to the Gentiles. But, but in this promise, the, the, the context would be to Israel and the house of Judah. Verse 32 says, Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers, and the day that I took them to the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. Now, which covenant was that? Anybody remember? What covenant is, is Jeremiah speaking about, or the Lord speaking through Jeremiah about? When I led them out of Egypt, that covenant. Where'd they go after Egypt? Anybody remember? The Mosaic covenant, right? Moses went up, Ten Commandments, think of Charlton Heston and God, right? Um, the Ten Commandments, right? We're talking about the law given at Sinai. That's the covenant he's talking about. Was that, was that a Gentile covenant made? No, it was not. It was a covenant made to Israel. So he, he says, I'm making you a covenant different than the one that when I took your fathers, the one I made with your fathers. So, so the context is definitely Israel. And this is what he says. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother saying, Know the Lord for they all shall know me. 
from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Now we know that this new covenant that, that God is going to make with Israel, we Gentiles are partakers in because we believed in Jesus Christ. So we get to partake in this. But the covenant is promised to who? To Jews, to Israel. Okay, that's who it's promised to. And it's important to say that, well, wait a minute. That hasn't happened yet. We're waiting on that. That's something yet future that we'll get to see because it certainly didn't happen when Jesus Christ came. I mean, yes, there were some Jews who received him, but not like you would think, not like what this prophecy speaks of. And so we see prophecies throughout the Old Testament, promises that are yet fulfilled, yet to be fulfilled. In fact, Ezekiel 37, you can turn with me over to Ezekiel 37. I've got to flip my Bible here. Do you, do you have it there already? I'm not sure. There it is. Oh, let me pull it up in my Bible here. Ezekiel 37 is quite an incredible promise. And for someone to be convinced that, oh, no, no, the church just replaces Israel, is to write off all this prophecy of the Old Testament. Ezekiel 37 says, The hand of the Lord, verse 1, came upon me and brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the midst of the valley, and it was full of bones. Then he caused me to pass by them all around, and behold, there were very many in the open valley, and indeed they were very, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? So I answered, O Lord God, you know. Again, he said to me, prophesy to these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, surely I will cause breath to enter you into you, and you shall live. I will put sinews on you and bring flesh upon you, cover you with skin and put breath in you, and you shall live. Then you shall know that I am the Lord." And I'm going to stop there, but as you go on in Ezekiel, you find that Israel's going to be as good as dead as a nation, but then yet God is going to resurrect that nation. Have we ever seen that happen? Yes, we have. In 1948, Israel was as dead as a nation. It was gone. They were dry bones, but yet God has resurrected. And you can continue reading on Ezekiel 37. 38 and 39, because you see how that, that continues on into the great tribulation. But all these prophecies have yet to be fulfilled where God has promised that he will restore Israel to himself. We're waiting on that day. And that's what Paul is talking about here when he says all Israel will be saved. That the, the salvation will be coming to Israel, to the remnant, but for now, you and I get to partake in that. By the way, you can write down just a note for yourself. Check out Zechariah 14, 1 through 4. It's another promise. Daniel uh, chapter 9, Daniel chapter 12. More promises have yet to be fulfilled. But I want to turn your attention to Matthew chapter 23. Matthew chapter 23. Jesus has, it's the, the week, Passion Week. Jesus has gone into the temple and now he, he, uh, he's leaving the temple, and this is what he says in verse 37. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. 
See, your house is left to you desolate. For I say to you, you shall see me no more till you say, Blessed is he who came, comes in the name of the Lord. Now, what's Jesus saying here? Well, Jesus is saying that because you've rejected me, I, I, I've wanted to gather you to myself. I've wanted to draw you to me. I've wanted to protect you and cover over you. But just as you rejected the prophets, just as you rejected their word, so now you are rejecting me. And so, so he says, I leave to you your house desolate. I, I'm leaving. And when will they see him again? Well, it says, you'll see me no more until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, until you're ready to receive me. So when's that going to be? Well, that'll be at his second coming. Verse 1 of chapter 24 says, Then Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came up to show him the buildings of the temple. And I love the disciples. You know, it's like, isn't this marvelous? Isn't this wonderful? And, <laughs> and Jesus is like, no, no, you're looking at the wrong thing. Look at me. So, and Jesus said, and Jesus said to them, Do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. And so Jesus makes this prophecy about the temple. And of course, today when you go to Israel, you can find those stones thrown off to the side. Uh, Titus Vespasia had completely destroyed it, stone by stone, just as Jesus said it would happen in 70 AD. Now, <clears throat> with that though, we see that, that there is a time coming where God, promise, or God promises to his people a new temple. And, that, and uh, that is still yet coming. Uh, but these things are, is Israel's turning away, Israel's blindness, their rejection of Messiah. And Paul now is going to write in verse 28, concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But concerning the election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts... And the calling of God are irrevocable. For as you were once disobedient to God, yet have now obtained mercy through their disobedience, even so these also have not been disobedient, that through the mercy shown you, they also may obtain mercy. For God has committed them, to all, uh, them all to disobedience, that he might have mercy on all. And so what is this uh, saying? What is Paul writing here? Well, concerning the gospel, they're enemies. Now, don't think of the word enemy as feeling of animosity toward Israel, okay? You and I, when we think of the word enemy, we think about I, I, I have animosity toward that person or they have animosity toward me and, uh, you know, it's like they're really bad and I'm really bad or I hate you and they hate me or whatever the case is. Well, that's not what it's saying. It's saying regarding their condition, they're enemies of the gospel. They're unsaved, they rejected Jesus Christ. They rejected his gospel. So regarding their condition, they're enemies of the gospel. Now, who does that help? Is that a blessing for you and for me? Yes, Paul says, for the sake, um, but uh, for, for your sake, they're, they're enemies of the gospel. Now, I want to say this uh, real fast before we leave that term enemy. Because uh, when it comes to our enemies, how do Christians respond? Pray. Love your enemies. Yeah. And Jesus said, what good is it if you love those who love you? Even the, the pagans do that. But you, you're going to love your enemies. 
and pray for them. Uh, we, we want salvation for those who are enemies. We shouldn't have animosity toward Israel or toward the Jew. Quite the contrary, we should have the heart of Paul where, where he's desiring that his countrymen be saved. And we see in the book of Acts how Paul goes to Jerusalem knowing that he's going to be bound and arrested, knowing that they're going to be pursuing after him to take his life. Uh, that, that really should be the heart of the Christian, that we, we should have mercy on those who are unsaved or enemies of the gospel. And so, but it says, but concerning the election, they are beloved for the sake of their fathers. So, so there's that condition that because God has elected, because he has made covenants with them, now, now we can see that they are beloved. The fathers, who are the fathers? Well, we're talking about the patriarchs. We're talking about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. For the love, I, I've, uh, my wife and I started doing a one-year Bible program this year, and we, we haven't done a one-year Bible in forever. And so we've been reading it, and uh, it was funny. The other morning, I'm trying to do my reading, and my wife, I'm a little bit ahead of her, so she was catching up. And she kept interrupting me to talk about, about uh, Jacob's wives and selling him for mandrakes and all those things. <laughs> I'm like, okay, let me read my, my part. But uh, I'll tell you, it's been a lot of fun uh, reading through, doing that one-year program. Uh, I just went on, I, nowadays you can use the Bible app, but I just went on one-year Bible and downloaded the paper and just checking it off each day. But, uh, but we're talking about those patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, because God called out Abraham and he made a covenant with him. And then he reaffirmed that covenant with Isaac. And then he reaffirmed it with Jacob, who is Israel. And so for the sake of the fathers, they are beloved. For the gifts of the calling of God are irrevocable. Now that's a wonderful promise. Underline that in your Bible. Circle that. Because that means that if God has, has chosen you, and what, what we're talking about, if, if you have come to salvation in Christ, it, it, he's not going to change his mind. You're, you're not all of a sudden going to end up on the outs with God. And that means even when you stumble. See, we oftentimes think about, oh, I sinned against the Lord. Now I've got to win back favor. No, no. It's not the way the relationship works with God. He paid it all as we've already visited in Romans. And so the, the gifts and the calling of God, all these promises and these covenants, they're irrevocable because God is not someone who hastily makes a promise or says something and goes, oh, I really shouldn't have said that. Let me take that back. God is not like you or me. And, and so they're irrevocable. For as you were once disobedient, Paul writes to God, yet have now obtained mercy through their disobedience, even so these also have not now been disobedient, that through the mercy shown you, they also may obtain mercy. Now, think about that for a moment. We're talking about the Gentiles who had no understanding of God. It was in the Old Testament we see that Israel, God is revealing himself to Israel. But what do we see of the Gentiles in the Old Testament? Chasing after pagan gods, idolatry, all these other things. In fact, it's a history of idolatry. So the Gentiles were disobedient prior. And now in Israel's disobedience and their rejection of Messiah, you've been shown mercy. And so it will be with, with uh, Israel. They will also obtain 
mercy. Look at verse 32. For God has committed them all to disobedience that he might have mercy on all. Okay. God has committed them all to disobedience. All of us have been disobedient. And yet through him we all can obtain mercy. God will have mercy on us all who call upon him. This is incredible when we start to understand this idea that God loves to show his mercy. That, that God is willing to show his mercy. You and I can't look at ourselves as better or uh, more mature than the Gentile or the Jew. We can't look at ourselves as, as having something and, oh, you know, those Jews, they've, they've totally ignored God and the calling of God. We can't look down upon them because in the same way, we were disobedient. And in the same way, God is showing us mercy and, oh, Lord, won't you show mercy to your people Israel? And so all of us, Israel and the Gentiles alike, we call upon him for his mercy. We don't say, God, look what I've done. Look at how I've kept your law. Look at all these good things I've done. So now can, can I earn your favor? No, it's show me mercy, God. That's what I need. I need to be shown mercy. And so we all come to him asking for mercy. Have mercy on us all. Now, verse 33, we're gonna, I'm going to finish on time. This is amazing. I cut out some, passage, some verses I was going to talk about. So, <clears throat> verse 33. Now, let me, hold on, let me pause for a moment here. Before we go into 33 and through 36, this is incredible. Paul is going to turn to praise. He's going to worship God as he's considered the goodness and the mercy of God. I almost, I, I really think that for us to fully understand verses 33 through 36, there takes a certain maturity as far as, not, I'm not talking about our age, but I'm talking about our understanding of who Christ is and what he's done, who I am in Christ. Because when we start to think about the goodness of God, we, and when we really start diving into it and think about who I am and how unworthy I am to receive that goodness and how unworthy, uh, <laughs> all the unworthy deeds I've done and all these things and, and to understand his love and his goodness toward me, it should cause each and every one of us to erupt in praise just like Paul's about to do. Look at what he says. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has become his counselor or who has first given to him and it shall be repaid to him. For of him and through him and to him are all things. To whom be glory forever. Amen. Amen. Now just consider this for a minute. The depths, the depth of his riches both wisdom and knowledge of God. So Paul, as he's considering the goodness of God and, and this idea of opening up salvation to the Gentile, but still yet he's going to save the Jew, Paul goes, man, this is so beyond me to even figure out how God is going to work all these things out. As Paul, I'm sure, is running through all the promises, the covenants, the prophecy, everything in the Old Testament, 
and, and of course, what he knows up to this point, you can just un- see him thinking about, man, God is working such a greater work than I can even imagine, than I can even understand. I've, I've had moments like this where I've seen a great work of God and I've gone, whoa, this is amazing. And I'm not talking about an individual work. I'm talking about the tapestry of work, if so to speak. I, I've been in the mission field and uh, met with different missionaries and, and people are doing different things. And, and, and uh, I th- the first time I think this really happened to me was in Kathmandu. Uh, I was obviously there for the, working for the earthquake relief in Nepal, and uh, we were going to and from and, and just trying to help out people and all these things, and I was working with Saji. But then we'd come across like this person from this fellowship in the United States or this person from a Korean fellowship, and uh, we were handling uh, aid for different little churches, obviously doing the work that God has set out. Meanwhile, this Korean church is working on clean water for villages where it's been disruptive. And, and th- this, this church over here has been bringing Bibles and, and oh, there's this ministry over here. And, and it was really cool because the, the church in, um, in Patton, in Kathmandu, uh, the English-speaking church, they asked me to, to speak to teach the Bible the first Sunday that it opened up. So I got, I got to do that. And, of course, I, I'm, I'm there and I'm going, what am I even going to say, Lord? I don't even know what to teach. This group who's just been through this terrible earthquake, the church has been shut down for three weeks and now I'm there. And uh, what am I going to teach? And so the Lord really gave me a message. But, but with that, uh, the coolest part about it was the whole globe was represented in that church. And everybody was doing different things. But all were doing it for the glory of God. And all were doing it that his kingdom might be added to and expanded. And I just thought about it going, wow. The depths and the riches of the wisdom of the knowledge of God. How amazing that he sees and calls this person to do this and this person to do this. And we're not in competition that's a false idea when we start to think we're in competition with other ministries. But we're, we're, we're all doing this for his kingdom's sake. And it's kind of amazing when we start to see it. And so Paul is saying how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. Listen, you can marvel at God's ways. You can praise him for his ways. But stop thinking that you can understand his ways. You're foolish if you think you can explain how salvation works. Well, we just say, I trust in Jesus. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has become his counselor? Not me. I'm not going to claim to counsel God. Not going to happen. And then finally in verse 36, for of him, oh, sorry, um, verse 35, or who has first given to him and it shall be repaid to him? Now consider this, there is no reciprocity that we've first given to God that it might be repaid to us. Well, I've been really good. Or I, you know, people on earth like me, I took a a poll and 10 out of 12 thought I was A-OK, so therefore you should pay it to me, God. No, it doesn't work that way. That's foolishness. And nor can we even repay God for what he's done. 
So we can't even, even consider that idea that in some way I'm going to give back to God to equal things out. It's not going to happen. But, but what we just do is we marvel and we praise him. For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. Boy, if the church understood that verse, if you understood that verse, that verse answers meaning in life, the purpose of your life. It answers, it answers who you are, your identity. It answers what you're to do and your eternity. That verse answers it all. It's, it's for him. It's through him. He equips me to do it for him. And it, it, it's to him. All things. Here it is. Get, I give it back to you, Jesus. And, and for you, be the glory. May my life magnify you. May it bring glory, should, uh, show your glory and your work in my life. Verse 36 if those who felt lost in this world, not sure what they're going to do, if the, if the Christians spent time with verse 36, there it is. It's your, your roadmap for life. And it's never a dull moment, I'll tell you that much. It's amazing when you live that way. It's all about you, Jesus. Well, <clears throat> I want to just make, have you make a note. Uh, go home tonight and read Isaiah 55. So we don't have time to read it tonight, but read Isaiah 55 as a supplement for <clears throat> Romans 11. Well, my voice is saying it's time, it's over, and it's, it's, I'm looking at the clock, and it's over. And so uh, may I encourage you, as we sing this last song, as we consider for him and through him, and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. We have a small group in here tonight. But man, I would love to hear us sing for him and to him, through him, be glory forever. Amen. That means that you sing with your whole heart. Even if you have a bad voice, I'm going to join you. I, I can't I have no singing talent whatsoever. But let's make a joyful noise unto the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you so much for this time together, and we thank you for your marvelous work, and Lord, we do pray for Israel. We want to ask, Lord, for, the, for each and every Jew across the globe, scattered throughout, that, Lord, you would make yourself manifest to them, that they might be given knowledge and understanding that those, those blinders might be lifted off, and Lord, you'd replace that heart of stone with a heart of flesh. Lord God, may we live as those who would make them envious of that wonderful relationship, God, we can't go on a PR campaign, but God, you can use us and magnify us as we show your love. So use us, dear God. And we pray for each and every one in this room tonight. We just thank you, Lord, for your wonderful salvation that you've provided for us. We give to you all the glory and all the praise, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Romans 11, verse 36, ends with that wonderful adoration of God as Paul magnifies and lifts up God. And then 12, verse 1 starts with, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, 
by the mercies of God that you present your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. We'll get into that next week, but let me encourage you this week, go and offer yourselves as living sacrifices in view of his great mercy. May God bless you and keep you. Amen.